Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Reasons to Believe, and we're going to turn to our Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Faith That Heals. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, everyone knows that Jesus healed the sick. You know, the Gospels are filled with accounts of Jesus healing the blind and lepers and paralyzed and lame people and many others. Now, at one time, people literally tore the roof off a house just to get a sick man to him. He can't read through the Gospels without coming to terms with the fact that, that healing was a major portion of Jesus' ministry. And this is one more of those accounts. But what is the significance of those miracles? I mean, is it that we might find out how we might be healed? You know, a great many people do teach that, and and at the outset, it seems that way. That is, until we examine the passages on healing in some depth, then a new truth arises. So imagine, if you will, the man in this story. Our English Bible calls him an official. The Greek word is the word basilikos, which can also be translated as a nobleman or a king's man. He's an important emissary of the king. Now, the only king around was King Herod Antipas, So this man was evidently an official in King Herod's court. He was also wealthy and had great influence, as Herod's men were all apt to be. Now, Herod Antipas is not to be confused with Herod the Great. You know, Herod the Great is the Herod who had the little children killed in Bethlehem. But Herod Antipas was Herod the Great's son, and this Herod would be the man who would put John the Baptist into prison for condemning his marriage to his half-brother's wife. And he then had John's head cut off to to please a beautiful woman, that is, his wife's daughter. And Jesus once called this man a fox. And indeed, he was regarded as a plotter, a man familiar with intrigue, always deceptive. And the Jews hated him. And so I can imagine that this nobleman, a man who had made his fortune serving Herod, was no better thought of. Why should he care? He was becoming a rich man. But now something else happened. His child became ill, and he would watch as his child's life was slowly ebbing away. And we should remember there comes a time when all our wealth and influence will not buy us what we want. 
You know, when you watch your child suffer, you might say, I'd give everything if I could take my child's place, but you and I know we can't. You know, some of you listening have stood at the graveside of a son or a daughter or a younger brother or a sister. And when you think about what you have gone through, you know this man's pain. In his case, death was inevitable. So when Jesus arrives in Cana of Galilee, where he performed his first miracle, this man left his home in Capernaum and he traveled what would have been a five-hour horse ride to see Jesus. He left his dying child, perhaps never to see him again, and the one opportunity to entice Jesus to come and to heal his boy. Now, for his part, Jesus arrived in Galilee after having spent two wildly successful days in Samaria, the country of the despised Samaritans. The woman at the well had believed in him, and so did the rest of the people of that town. But Jesus was traveling through Samaria. He had been sent by God to minister to the lost house of Israel. Now he came to Galilee among his own people. And in order to set up this encounter with Herod's man, John tells us in verse 44 that Jesus had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. No doubt, while leaving the revival in Samaria, Jesus was telling his disciples that things would be very different when they got home. And indeed, as we're going to find out, they were different indeed. Now look at verse 45. It says, Those Galileans who had been to Jerusalem at the Passover and had seen Jesus do miracles there treated him as a rock star when he got to Cana. You know, at first blush, that verse seems to contradict the previous one. Rather than being difficult when he got home, I mean, the whole place is cheering for him. But what had happened in Jerusalem? You know, of the things that he had done, there had been many miracles. And he had already done one in Cana before. And then out of the blue comes our man, the the royal official from Capernaum, eyes gaunt and haggard from a long ride. He's panting and cares nothing for his appearance. At other times, he might have been arrogant and unconcerned, but this time, uh, he begs. I imagine him falling on his knees. He is now way beyond arrogance or power or money or position. He loves his son more than all of those things. Have mercy, he might have said. You know, the lessons of illness in his house taught him that life and death were far more important than everything he had cared about before. You know, death had come to his door and he was devastated. And what happens next seems shocking especially to those who are still unfamiliar with Jesus. You know, Jesus has this man before him, and he turns to the cheering crowds in Cana. So look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You know, I imagine the crowd became quiet. I mean, what is it he just said? So please remember again that this crowd in Cana had also recently been to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we learn that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He knew what was in their hearts. Jesus knew how different this crowd and the crowd in Jerusalem was from the one he had just left in Samaria. See, the crowd in Samaria was interested because Jesus promised them that he could satisfy the thirst for salvation. In contrast, the crowd in Jerusalem and in Cana said, let's see more miracles. We just love that stuff. And so clearly we see that that John wants us to know that the thirst for miracles is a misdirected faith. That kind of faith is almost universally condemned in the Bible. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. 
He says Jews demand miraculous signs and, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Then he says it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And turn ahead to John 12, verse 37. There we read, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That is, they did not believe in him unto salvation. You know, some time ago, I read about a pastor of a a large prestigious church. This man was noted to be one of the best Bible teachers in America in his day, and many flocked just to hear him. He once confessed to a friend that he had kept a secret library, which he kept in his home. You see, the library in his office was filled with weighty theological themes on which he preached, but the one in his home was filled with paperbacks that told the story of miracles. The reason he said he read them was because he was fighting the demons of doubt that frequently assailed him, and he he just desperately was trying to get himself to believe. But in spite of reading all of those books, the doubts just kept coming back. You see, a faith based on healing is really a useless kind of faith. It fails the test. Some of you right now are struggling with your faith. You don't want anyone to know how little you actually believed, and you're hoping and praying for some major event that will get you to believe. But on that track, you're never going to believe. See, the real test of our faith begins by evaluating what we really want of Jesus. Is it simply to see the spectacular? And if so, he has so little for us. You know, superficial faith is inspired by Christ's popularity. It is with Christ when the miracles happen or when his popularity is on the rise. But in the day of suffering or in the day of unpopularity, quickly people abandon him. And so we see Jesus testing the royal official. What are you asking for? And as we're going to see, Jesus is far more interested in why we want the miracle than in the actual miracle itself. It's not different today. We are superficial if we're only there for the good times. Let me tell you, the greatest test to your faith, in fact, it will be the test whether or not you have genuine faith. This is the test. What happens when the good times are gone? Unless you people see miracles, says Jesus, you will never believe. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh Again, Truth, bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. You know, Peter's been talking about the kind of faith that results in our salvation, and he says, In this you rejoice, though now, 
for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like fire burns away impurities out of gold, says Peter, so suffering and trials burns away superficiality from our faith. Our faith should be focused on the inheritance that will not pass away, not the good times that may come or may not come. God is determined to give us a lasting faith. The test of faith begins by evaluating what we want of Jesus. Superficial faith is inspired by Christ's popularity. In contrast, genuine faith is inspired by the desire for eternal life. Let me press the point. It's not enough to come to Jesus just because we want to get to heaven or want our sins forgiven. You know, some people do want that, but they have also wanted to live a worldly life here on earth. You see, we must come to Jesus because we want his kind of life, the kind of lifestyle, the the quality of living that comes to us out of eternity. Eternal life has to start now. You begin to live in it at work and church. When you live out a lifestyle as a single, for instance, who maintains sexual purity in relationships, it's lived in the nuts and bolts of daily existence. It's an approach to life that lives life for the the pleasure of experiencing God and, and worshiping Him in everything you do. Only Jesus can give this kind of life. You must want it. You've got to desire it more than gold. You must receive it from Christ Himself. And in contrast, superficial faith is based on the ongoing flow of miracles. And that's the background to this account. But let's get back to what happens when Herod's man falls at Jesus' feet and begs that Jesus would come back with him, take that five-hour journey back to Capernaum and heal his son. He knew he was asking a lot, but he was desperate. And Jesus refuses to go back with him. His ministry was directed by God, and so right now, he must be in Cana and not be distracted. So he simply says to him, you can go. Your son will live. And that's all. Now let's go back to verses 50b to verse 52. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that the son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. I mean, did you catch that? When this man went back, his servants met him, and they informed him that the child got better yesterday at the time that Jesus spoke to him. So let me make sure you understand what happened. The chronology means that Jesus healed the boy at about 1 p.m. If this man had hurried, he could have gotten home that very same day by about 6 p.m. You know, if my son lay dying and I had left him early that morning, not knowing if I'd see him again, well, I'd hurry back immediately to see how he was. This man doesn't do that. He evidently spent the rest of the day in Cana. Maybe there was stuff to do there. Maybe he just wanted to listen to Jesus. But then the next day, he made his way home. Why did he do that? Answer, because he already knew the son would be fine. How did he know that? Because Jesus had told him so. Don't you see superficial faith says, you know, if I see it, I'm going to believe. That kind of faith is never satisfied. It never fully believes. But genuine faith says, I so firmly trust in Christ's words. And because he had said so, 
I know that eventually I will see it. That's faith. That's what faith is. Faith believes long before it sees. That's how I know I'm going to go to heaven. I perceive it already in faith. That's how I get the life I've always wanted. I grasp it in faith. That's what faith is. Faith sees what is not visible to the senses. And that's the faith that heals. It's a faith that simply trusts Jesus for everything, including healing. Now, someone's going to say, ah, there it is. Confess it so and it will happen. Well, no, that's not what happened here. This official didn't trust in some confession that his son would get well. He trusted in what Christ had said to him. See, faith is not about formulas. It's about trusting in the promises of Jesus. Later on in John chapter 9, we meet a blind man who was blind for the glory of God. Don't you know that sometimes God does heal us instantly, and sometimes he waits for eternity to heal us? And that's a fact. We must trust in the promises of God through Jesus. Look, all healings of Jesus are signs that he is who he says he is and that he can be trusted when he speaks. And when it comes to healing, you can be healed of cancer today, but I promise you, you're going to die of something tomorrow. If we encounter healing in this life, it is only a temporary thing. But true faith is a faith that believes in Jesus unto eternal life. The faith that heals is a faith that believes in Jesus. It's a faith that comes to him for eternal life. It's, it's a faith that says, I believe you have life. And if you say so, that life will be mine. And by what follows, it's clear that this is what this man had. That is, the faith that heals is a faith that's founded in confidence on Jesus. Look again at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. You know, again, in this book, we come to the matter of believing. I don't know about you, but I find the contrast here is startling. You know, on the one hand, the Samaritans and then this despised henchman of King Herod truly believe in Jesus. And on the other side are the Jews of Jerusalem and Galilee, that is the chosen people of God. So guess who believed? Guess who got life? Guess who got healed? Well, the most unlikely of people. You know, I'm personally astonished when I see how often Jesus passes over the chosen people and then heals the outcasts, Roman centurions, tax collectors, Assyrian Phoenician woman, so forth. You know, one time Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, that's found in Matthew 8, verses 11 to 12. Since this is an established pattern in the Bible, I think we can come to some conclusions about this matter. So first of all, we notice that Jesus comes in grace to people who have needs, like this man, and he's willing to confess it. He's needy and offers Jesus nothing. He has no solutions. He only comes with his needs. Second, I find that true faith is often lacking in people who make demands of Jesus. Do a miracle, they demand, rather than, I'm desperate, I have no hope outside of you. Jesus does not respond to demands, but he does respond to those who plead with him for mercy. You know, people who make demands of God never seem to have genuine faith. I once remember someone saying that unless God agreed with 
her point of view on a given issue, she said to me, I'm going to withdraw my support of God and no longer believe in him. You know, this is a woman who had spent most of her life in a church, a fine church member in an evangelical church, and I found out she wasn't kidding. God better come around, she said, or else. Now look, we may not be as strident, but we're always in danger of doing that. God, if you don't bless my marriage to this person, I will do it anyway. God, if you don't let me be involved in this activity, I'm going to do it anyway. I'll still be a Christian and have it my way. You know, faith always begins with surrender, never with demands. It starts by saying, I give up, not let's negotiate. So how do you approach God? Are there some things in your life right now that you will not accept from God? Will you plead with him or will you demand of him? What's your approach to God? And that leads to my final point of application here. Grace through faith often comes to people that least expect it. Grace comes to Samaritans, to royal officials no one trusts. It comes to the demon-possessed. It comes to those who think of themselves as sinners and in need. So how about you? Would you characterize yourself in that way? If so, Christ's grace is for you. But if you come to him demanding your own way, well, may God have mercy on your soul. We will find Christ's rebuke and not his response to our demands. So let's be the kind of people who come needy, allowing Jesus to lead and let us follow. But above all, when he speaks, let's believe. John, let me ask you, if we come to Jesus for a miracle, we pray for a miracle, what ought we expect from him? Yeah, I mean, Ben, I I know that there are so many people that teach all manner of contradictory things here. So I think we ought to say that God is merciful and gracious and that Jesus, when we come to him in faith and we say, oh, Lord, help me, I'm perishing, he responds because of his graciousness towards us. So we should expect God to be gracious. Now, we don't always know what ultimate graciousness looks like. I mean, sometimes graciousness really does bring us a miracle right now. I've known all sorts of people. I mean, recently, Ben, I knew a guy that was blind that was instantly healed. I just am amazed by that. But I've also known individuals where God, because of his long-term designs, has something even better. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. 
Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.